can see me for who I am, and I you, he says to me. I can deliver you from this nothingness. I can give you a talent that will feed your belly and bring you redemption to these town folk. They will see you for your worth. You will have the ability to do things they cannot. Meet me in the churchyard tomorrow at the dead of night. Walk backwards around the church three times. Each round, call to me. Call to me in fear and love, and I will come and create you anew. That is from the Black Book of Jonathan Notbristle, A Devil's Parable and Guide for Witches by Chris Elm. Hello and welcome to Luxacult. This is the podcast where we gleefully taunt the mundane, butcher the Latin and most other languages, and also discuss a variety of occult topics, exploring the intersections of magic, art, philosophy, science, technology, and so much more through the lens of chaos magic. It's occultism for everyone. I'm your host, Lux Estrada, and if you're hearing the sound of my voice, that means that this show and magic are for you if you want them. There are a lot of different ways to be more free, and using magic or making space for a spiritual practice in your life can be one of them. As always, I don't speak for anybody but myself. Others can, will, and should disagree sometimes. How will we ever learn anything if we all agreed all the time after all? And like people who attempt to be reasonable should be willing to do, I am willing to revise my opinions based on new evidence. All right, I'm very excited to bring you a conversation that I had with Chris Allen about his book, The Black Book of Jonathan Not Bristle, A Devil's Parable and Guide for Witches. We talk about the devil in witchcraft and the Bible and in culture a little bit the activism of existence, and Chris also speaks about the importance of narrative as a tool for teaching magic and witchcraft. We'll hear about Chris's relationship with the narrator of the story, Jonathan. Spoiler here, he's not quite like you or I. And how Chris and Jonathan came to know one another. So I suppose that since I don't really connect with things from a religious perspective and never have since I wasn't raised that way, the idea of the devil has always been something that was pretty abstract for me. And I'm grateful for this, actually. But for a lot of folks, this idea was or is something that is very actual and scary and taboo. And working with that kind of thing can be very powerful. So the concept of the devil comes up in a variety of ways throughout cultures and a culture, and we'll hear a little bit about how that figure is seen in the tradition that Chris follows. It's interesting stuff. Today's episode within the episode will feature the return of listener favorite, my brother Asher, host of the Ad Hoc History Podcast, which I co-host with him. Today, Asher shares about some experiences he's had exploring dilapidated buildings, and that liminal feeling that you can sometimes encounter in places where what came before and the present seem to bleed into one another, and one encounters ghosts of the past. One of these places that my brother shares about having this experience is the factory where the TSR company used to produce gaming pieces for the earlier versions of the Dungeons & Dragons tabletop role-playing game. Asher and I also talk about the sort of change of perspective that can be encompassed in the experience of revisiting a place that you remember from your childhood and seeing how it's changed. 
So before I plunge on ahead, I'd like to say thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me and my amazing guests here on this show. If you would like to send me some listener mail, you can reach out to me at lexicultpod at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram at lexicultpod. If you like the show and the other stuff that I'm getting into, you can support it on Patreon. If you do, you can take a bibliomancy break with me. There are no tiers or levels or whatever, so give as you will. Buymeacoffee.com is also an option for those who wish to show their support with a one-time donation. So thank you so much to everybody who's already doing this. Your support really makes the show possible and it means a lot to me. I've recently incurred some new expenses associated with making it, so those Patreon dollars and stuff certainly factor into the equation when I think about the time and money and energy and everything else that goes into things. I feel really lucky to be able to be doing this. It's something that I think I wanted for a long time before I actually did anything about it, and this show wouldn't be what it is without your support. So yeah, thank you for listening, for writing positive reviews, telling your friends, giving it some stars. Thank you for helping me do this thing that I feel passionately about appreciate it. Uh, there are some awesome things on the horizon here that I'm stoked to tell you about later, but now let me tell you about my first guest. So Chris Allen has been studying witchcraft, magic, and paganism since 1992. He is one of the founders and ordained ministers with the Fellowship of the Phoenix, an LGBTQ plus earth-based spiritual church. He has been an initiate of the tradition of witchcraft since 2002 He's also a Native American pipe carrier and studies the path of the Red Road. He teaches classes and workshops on magic, healing, shamanism, and necromancy. He has been teaching and writing for many years. He's the author of Underworld, Shamanism, Myth, and Magic, Deeper into the Underworld, Death Ancestors and Magical Rites, and Upperworld, Shamanism and Magic of the Celestial Realms as well as the book we'll be talking about today. So Chris continues to study and teach the magical arts to all those who seek to balance the three worlds in their own lives. All right, fuck yeah. Chris is also a super chill, nice person. So I'll be back a little bit later to share a few thoughts about initiation stories and to do an update about what we have going on at the Green Mushroom Project and also share a track from the upcoming digital mixtape collaboration with the We The Hollowed Occult Artists Collective. So that's going to be coming out in October. Stoked for that. There's also going to be some listener mail and shout outs, some programming notes, dope stuff in the works, as I said, and some other tidbits for you to enjoy. But now, without further ado, let's get into it. Here is my chat with Chris Allen. My guest today is Chris Allen. So Chris, could you go ahead and tell us a bit about who you are and what you're into and what you're up to? So my name is Chris Allen. Um, I am, as you know, a published author, but I'm also a um, ordained uh, pagan minister with the Fellowship of the Phoenix, which is a, which is a queer pagan temple. And what am I doing? Right now, I'm actually writing a new book that's going to come out next year. So I'm doing that now. I'm not very far into it. I'm only into like chapter three. But um, I'm doing that and enjoying the summer and uh, trying and talking about Jonathan a lot lately. <laughs> very cool. 
Would you mind telling me a little bit more about the local pagan guild that you're part of? That sounds interesting. So, um, yes. So the Fellowship of the Phoenix is a queer pagan temple that we established back in 2004. We became a 501c3 in 2005. It's it's primarily queer pagan, but we're also, I like to say, queer spiritualities. So whatever you... Whatever path you have, whatever you you believe, whatever you follow, we want to celebrate that. And you know, we meet on close to, to the traditional eight pagan sabbaths. And yeah, that's about it. We also have a temple in Seattle. So there's a two temples: one in Chicago and one in Seattle. All right, very cool. Hell yeah. So, the Black Book of Jonathan Not Bristle, A Devil's Parable and Guide for Witches, it's a little bit of a different beast than, like, what might, <laughs> we might think of, of, like, your, rot, like, modern run-of-the-mill, you know, grimoire spell book or whatever. There's a lot of narrative that's used, that I think narrative is used as a really interesting teaching device here. So, can you give me and the listeners, like, and I a sort of, like, elevator pitch and the, the premise of this book? So Jonathan's not Bristol. So the idea takes place in 1870 Texas. Um, it never says Texas, but it is because that's where I grew up. And it's a about a, a boy, a man at that time, who's 15 years old, and his family dies, and he doesn't have anything. He has n- n- uh, no means of support, and so the devil comes and offers him to make him a, a witch so that he can uh, survive and, and thrive and things like that. And each chapter is his, his adventures, his discovery into witchcraft, because, you know, once he decides to, uh, to become a witch, you know, he jumps down the, the rabbit hole and sets everything in motion. And so... You know, it's, this is his story, and and each of the chapters has a few spells or magical techniques that will help the reader through magic and witchcraft and things like that. Yeah, very cool. There was a lot in it that I found, you know, reading it that it, it seemed kind of familiar. You know, just from my own work, experimenting with you know magic and witchcraft, even as a kid. You know, this sort of intuitive way that Jonathan is able to find his way to things. And yeah, there was a lot about it that that rung really true for me. And I loved that. So we learned pretty early on how Jonathan Not Bristle meets the devil in the narrative of this book. But how did you meet Jonathan Not Bristle? Like, did he come knocking on your door like the devil did for him? Or what was the process of writing this book like? And I'm curious, what is your relationship with the characters in the book like now? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. So in my tradition of witchcraft, we often work with what we call the witch ancestors or the hidden company and things like that. And, you know, we've been working with these ancestral spirits for about 10 years now, almost 10 years. And so, you know, the spirit of Jonathan, I actually changed his name. That's not his actual name. And he's a spirit that uh, our group works with often. And, you know, when I sat down to, to write the book, I said, okay, inspire me, teach me, tell me. 
because you know and I think what's been lost in in teaching witchcraft is storytelling because normally you know they don't just say especially back in the day they didn't say I'm going to teach you trance or I'm going to teach you how to write a broom it came with the story it came with a, um, a metaphor it came with a legend and oftentimes a warning so you know Jonathan inspired me through some of his stories and 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 just some of the other, I want to say inspirations, because like people ask if if I channeled Jonathan as I was writing this, and I didn't. I don't want to say I channeled him. I want to say that he was around, he was inspiring, he told me stories, and I wrote down what I felt, what was in my head, what was in my dreams, and that became this the the story of Jonathan, not Purcell. Um, my relationship with the other characters, I really don't have a relationship with the other characters because this is his story, you know. So it's kind of hard to explain. So my tradition, like we invite the ancestral spirits to join us in circle, and some do, some. I don't, and I believe that the ones who join you want to be teachers and guides and things, and in that. And so the other ones I've never actually worked with on the personal level, but Jonathan has. So okay, cool. So you just sort of know them; they're friends of a friend, if you will. Right, they're a friend of a friend, exactly. Okay. Very cool. I love that. So. How would you feel about taking a little bibliomancy break? (laughs) Hey, what's up? I'm Luxa. And I'm Josh. Are you looking for a chill place to hang out online and chat about chaos magic, occultism, witchcraft, and more? Are you hoping to learn and share your knowledge and experience in a place that is welcoming folks of all different backgrounds and identities? If so, check out the Green Machine Discord server, home of the Green Mushroom Project and Administrism. Our growing community of chaos, occultists, sorcerers, witches, and weirdos has all kinds of fun and interesting things going on. From chats and rituals to workshops, clubs, and more, there's a lot of cool opportunities to get involved. Sounds great, Luxa. How can folks find us? Well, for now, we're keeping things pretty small as we grow, so we're not advertising on any of the Discord services that do that. But folks can hit me up and I will send them a link. You can reach me at luxoccultpod at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram at luxoccultpod. Fuck yeah! Fuck yeah. (laughs) Fuck yeah, indeed. Hey, what's up? It's me, Luxa, from the future. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We'll be getting back to my conversation with Chris Allen in just a little bit here. We get into some bibliomancy, and Chris shares some ideas about the relationship he sees between magic and activism. We also talk about the devil himself. Who is he in the Black Book of Jonathan Not Bristle, A Devil's Parable and Guide to Witches? And who is he in the greater world? Chris goes into how the devil is contextualized in his tradition of witchcraft and much more, so stay tuned for that. Do you have thoughts about the devil as an archetype? Or maybe have some personal or historical antidotes you'd like to share about this figure with the listeners and I? Send them to me at luxacultpod at gmail.com, or you can find me at luxacultpod on Instagram. Speaking of Instagram, I mean the devil, I hear you can summon him from playing a mysterious occult game known as Dungeons and Dragons. 
Tom Hanks also told me that playing this game can make you go crazy. I mean, using your imagination is, after all, very dangerous. I'm poking fun at the 1982 made-for-TV movie titled Monsters and Mazes, which sent many misinformed folks into a tizzy which had them clutching at their proverbial pearls. I've played this game before. I'm actually part of a table who's been playing it together for over six years now. We're doing Spelljammer at the moment. Shout out to the real heroes of Brawl, if any of you are listening. It's sort of funny. I think I'm probably the most nerdy person at this D&D table since I'm into all this occult shit. But it's a badge that I wear with pride, much like the official Camp Chaos Grundle Inspector badge that Junior C, who you heard in the little spot for the Discord server, made for me. And I think that a lot of us do wear that badge proudly, being a nerd or whatever, or maybe just an outcast. I think there's a lot of, uh, maybe toxicity would be a good word to associate with what could be described as, like, mainstream nerd culture, which is kind of an interesting, like, thing that maybe at one time would have been an oxymoronic statement, but now I think there's definitely, like, a mainstream culture associated with nerddom, and, uh, yeah, there's... There's many things that we could say about it, but that's not what we're here to talk about now. Um, perhaps you're like me, also the type of nerd who's interested in learning about history in an attempt to make sense of the present. My brother Asher, in addition to being a sort of like gaming enthusiast, is also super into history. He shared an experience with me that I thought you all might enjoy hearing about too. What ghosts did Gary Gygax leave behind in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin? Okay, so for all the spooky nerds out there, this is for you. Cheers. Here's a little chat with Asher from Ad Hoc History. Man getting bit by an alligator and he screams. All right, well, back once again. My guest today is Asher, my brother. How's it going, dude? It's going very well, Luxa. Thank you for having me back on the show. Fuck yeah, well thanks so much for returning for another uh, installment of, this isn't actually going to be explaining chaos magic to my brother, but people can go back and listen to explaining chaos magic to my brother episodes in which you and I discuss chaos magic topics. These are some of the first episodes of this show, so yeah, go back and check that out if you haven't heard them already. So dude, last time we were talking, you shared a very fun story with me. But before we get to that, tell me what you've been up to recently. Oh, not too much, Luxa. Just uh, continued work on our podcast together, Ad Hoc History. We are working on a Pacific Asia World War II episode with special guest Josh Wetzel. So make sure to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to having Josh Wetzel return. And yeah, for folks who haven't checked out Ad Hoc History yet, it's not the history podcast you wanted, it's the history podcast you deserve. Absolutely. We try to kind of take a look at history and maybe get into the sort of like mindset of what some of these folks might have been thinking about or um, just their perspectives, you know, like we try to take a sort of human look at history and understand it in a more maybe like narrative sense than just what you would refer to as like chronology. Absolutely. I think a lot of people kind of have had their experience with history soured based on the study of chronology, kind of masquerading as history. And while that is an important aspect of it, it's not really the point of it, because it's really more of a study of human nature and decisions and 
cause and effect. And it offers a really interesting window into, you know, people and people having to make decisions and how, you know, also alternate possibilities, how things could have been different. You know, like there's a lot of focal turning points in history where, you know, it could have gone a different way. And so we definitely try to get away from just this happened on this date and then this happened on this date. Because not only is that extremely boring, it's kind of missing the point of it all. Yeah, absolutely. And so before you and I started making this podcast, history had been a point in my education that I really felt that I didn't. It was kind of a hole. You know, there's a lot of places where maybe it could be developed more. And so I think that my own experience in terms of like making this podcast and just kind of trying to fill in some of these blanks is that just having this context for the past makes the present make so much more sense. So yeah, it's, it's been really interesting. It's been very cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of history and, you know, having context and stuff like that, there's all types of places around the world that are, you know, historical monuments, historical sites, like these places that these important or meaningful things happened at or you know, these grand monuments that were built by people. And so there's this kind of sense that places can hold their own memories, their own kind of like, you know, ghosts of the past, if you will. Absolutely. I think it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a cliche or whatever. But if you go to like an old fort, you know, that's seen battles or something, it just has a different kind of feel to it. Or if you, you go to a house where something really bad happened, you know, these kind of, I don't know how to describe it, but it definitely are energized or just places that feel like they have a history of things happening there. It's like almost like they're they're charged or they're layered or there's some weird kind of window back into the events of their past. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we've we have friends who are paranormal investigators. Shout out to Flood and all of the folks on the Exoplanet <laughs> yeah. paranormal investigative team. Um, and so yeah, this is definitely a theme that comes up all the time for people who are interested in this going to these places that you know these events take place in or that these hauntings are reputed to have happened in and stuff. So kind of on this theme, you are sharing with me one of your own experiences with a place where you used to be employed. And yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't mind giving the listeners and I a little taste of that. Cause I know there's a lot of people in the audience who are fans of tabletop role-playing games and who have, you know, that that's been something that's been a meaningful part of their lives. And so I, I thought this would be a, a fun story to share here on the air. Absolutely. Yeah. So about a year ago, I moved to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and little did I know that this is actually the birthplace of Dungeons and Dragons. And Gary Gygax lived here when he created the game. He was originally from Chicago, but he moved here and I believe he died here in Lake Geneva. And Dungeons and Dragons was created like less than a mile from where I live, basically. And the house so where it was sorry, go ahead oh no sorry i was just getting so excited i was like the house where it is is a museum that you can go to and they'll run a D game for you <laughs> yeah it's called the dungeons and dragons museum and it's kind of like a touristy little thing where like you can hire a dm to like run a game for you and you can sit in the basement where you know he was creating the game with his friends 
Yes. And I mean, we can say what we want about how Hasbro has been managing Wizards of the Coast Company in recent years and everything. But just in terms of like the historical sense of that, like, I think that sounds very, very fun to go play a game of D&D in Gary Gygax's basement. Oh, yeah, dude. And like, as far as like, act like the influences of games and stuff, like, I don't think there's been one more influential, at least in our like kind of modern sphere than Dungeons and Dragons and just all the video games I grew up playing and actually getting into Dungeons and Dragons itself and having that become a big part of my life. It was really cool that I'm like, you know, living in its kind of cradle here um, and had no idea. Very cool. Fuck yeah. So not only was it created there, but some of the first uh, gaming pieces associated with, with it were manufactured there as well. That's correct. And also, to my surprise, like the first place I was employed here is a plastics factory. And it just turns out that I, well, I don't think it was the very first edition of Dungeons & Dragons, but I think it was one of their first really big market successes where they would make those, I don't know, boxes. The and red could... box, like TSR thing? Yeah, TSR. I think it was, and, yeah, okay. Yeah, you could buy this box. It had all the had a, you know maps and dice and little figurines for you to you know represent your characters and move them around and stuff and even while i was interviewing there they told me that oh yeah this is uh this used to be owned by tsr they used to produce out of this facility she's like oh that's really interesting so yeah even just the web of this thing stretched way further than i even knew and here i was applying to a place that was like kind of really fundamental in its commercial success and had no idea so working at this place, it didn't turn out to be super fun in the long run, but there were some interesting experiences that you had during that, which... <laughs> <laughs> that is a good way of putting it, yes. It turns out that I'm not a huge factory guy, but it was a really interesting experience getting to work in that industry for a little while, in the plastics industry. But I had this really interesting experience while working there, and... The factory floor where everything's actually produced and stuff like that was all, you know, very in good, very working order, working condition. But there was like this derelict part of the factory that was like an office section that was kind of upstairs and kind of connects like the factory floor to the corporate offices. And it's just kind of this, I don't know, forgotten part of the factory that is, you know, said it's derelict and no one really goes up there. But one day, we, we were actually looking for chairs. One of the chairs in our office, I was in the shipping department, broke. And so we knew there was a bunch of chairs kind of in this kind of unused office storage area. A place where you're just not supposed to go because it's like derelict. <laughs> yeah, it's just unused. Uh, so we went looking for, for a chair and got a chance to walk through this old derelict section of the factory and it was just the most, I guess, eerie. It wasn't scary or anything like that, but it was just really eerie walking through this area of the factory. And there are just old cubicle casings that are you know, broken and leaning against the wall. And everything's just ridiculously dusty. And there are huge spiders. The whole factory had huge spiders, but... This place especially had huge spiders and there was old like boardrooms, like meeting rooms, and then just a bunch of offices that would have, you know, old 
dilapidated furniture covered in dust and rags and you know there's big piles of steel casings that i have no idea what they were used for and just walking through this area this was the area that tsr used when they were designing dungeons and dragons or you know designing their product there was a moment there hearing you describe this room where i'm like i searched the desk (laughs) that's what i love about this story because i think that it's kind of this interesting like meta story where here's this like kind of dungeon environment that's evolved out of you know where this work used to take place and um, yeah it's it's interesting to that's me. so funny because i never really thought of it that way but it, it really was like that like you and your party progressing room to room like searching and you know yeah it would have been the perfect setting for like a D campaign <laughs> i love it very cool so tell me a little bit about the time capsule oh yes outside on like kind of like the break area there's just a big plaque from tsr and I think it was from 1975, maybe? I don't remember exactly the date when they placed the time capsule. But yeah, there's just a little plaque and underneath that. I don't know. Nobody knows what's in there. But um, When is it supposed to be opened? I don't think it's said on there. I'm not really sure how they plan all that. but Okay. Yeah. But yeah, they did leave a little time capsule there. And um, I mean, the factory today is making mostly automotive parts, you know, so it's Nothing to do with gaming. But yeah, walking around those abandoned sections of it. First of all, it felt weird that they own all of this area that's just completely abandoned. Like, that was weird in itself. There's also an interesting metaphor that the, like, abandoned, dilapidated part is the part that connects the workers' floor with the, fact with the like, corporate offices. Too. Like, there's an <laughs> right? interesting metaphor in there, too. Yeah. Right? Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a weird place working there. Um but the whole time I was walking through this kind of really interesting environment, it just felt like like when you look into an office, you could almost see somebody sitting there and designing this game or or going into that boardroom. You could see them all around the table, like working. And it just had this energy to it, like this memory that was intense and while nothing happened, there was no spooky, anything like that. It just really felt like this area had had a story to tell. And it's just, yeah, I don't, I can't really describe it, but it was extremely intense walking around there and just knowing that this area was kind of really important to me and my own kind of hobbies and stuff that I care about. This was a really powerful place and you could really feel that it, that it had been, you know. Oh, yeah. No, that's very cool. Yeah. And I think that there's, yeah, there's a lot there in terms of like exploring the memories of a place or, you know, how you can stand in a place and kind of like think about how time connects to it. I mean, and also just, you know, in terms of like a more personal sense, you know, you and so many of our friends and people that we know this game or games like it have been, you know, such an important part of people's like social lives or whatever that, you know, you can kind of think about all these like branching paths that connect people like through this game originating back at this point where some of this work was done too which is also cool yeah absolutely and and i guess i will say that there was something a little melancholic about it just seeing something after its day has passed you know seeing something fallen into ruin where once there was so much energy and happiness and and thought yeah 
this idea of like liminality too comes up like when we at least when I look at like you know pictures of old abandoned buildings which is something that I like to do because it's interesting to me and um, yeah just yeah this concept of liminality is definitely something that comes up another thing that we talked about kind of in the same conversation was you know revisiting places that you frequented as a child and kind of seeing how those places have changed versus how you remember them and how jarring that can sometimes be, you know, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, it really is. That other example we talked about was the school that Lux and I went to when we were children. And it was this, I think, old building from like the 30s or 40s brick building. Yeah, even when we were little kids, it like wasn't in great shape. It like you no. could tell it was old. <laughs> like, yeah. They had kept it up super, super well. Like there was some electrical problems and shit. Like, so yeah, this was a long time ago when this was the case. So yeah. And it's no longer there. It was torn down and replaced with like these like very bougie condos, you know. But before it was torn down, it was like condemned for like a whole summer. And me and my friends found our way into the premise one night, kind of knew where the doors didn't shut correctly. And uh, we basically broke in and explored the old building and... It was also in this incredibly derelict state. It probably was super dangerous doing this, but we did it anyways. And we got to explore our old school that, you know, we were children when we went there. And that was a, that was a jarring experience. That felt like a horror film. And walking into the bathrooms where, you know, spent a lot of time in there, I guess. And But there was holes in the ground that went down into, like, the basement level. The, there was a gym in the basement. Mm-hmm. And... The boys' bathroom had these holes in the ground where you could see into the gym, and all the wild. yeah, yeah, like exactly like what you would think in like a disaster movie or like horror movie. Sure, and I think that like for me, just kind of considering this as like you know this being a place where I spent so much time in it, it felt very safe and secure. You know, like as a kid, like you know there was things about it that felt extra safe. Like you know things were built to scale for kids and stuff like the chairs were little the the toilets were kind of small so it wasn't hard to get on you know there was all kinds of yeah. things that made it feel very like comfortable and safe and everything and so to go back and see it in this like different state I think um yeah it's an it's, it's an interesting reality check I suppose it, it was an interesting experience it's it was haunting like absolutely haunting and that's another you know another place especially because we spent so much time there that you could feel all of the energy associated with it. You could hear, like, you couldn't literally hear the the laughter, but you could feel it. You know, you could feel this, the echo of all these memories and experiences that have happened here. And then walking through it while it's all destroyed and it's completely been changed into this kind of horrific, you know, like, landscape was incredibly jarring. And uh, I think they tore down the building a few weeks after we were in there. And so, yeah, it's a memory that's like stayed with me just exploring that thing. And there's all these like hidden nooks and crannies to it that we didn't even realize were there, but you could kind of see the evidence of it while it was in this ruined state. Yeah, there were all kinds of like secret tunnels and shit in that building and like weird stuff that I I didn't explore too deeply, but I did find the like entrances to some of them. Yeah, it was really cool. Very cool stuff. And I think like, so what I'm thinking about here is like, you know, this state that the building existed in as you found it and the state that it existed in when we were kids, like both of those things are still real in their way, right? Like they're both 
they're both sure. factual. Now that we have the context to see this, you know, this both this thing in both of these states and understand it in both of these contexts, we can understand it more fully, right? Like we only saw part of it when we were kids. We see the other half of it now as adults. Yeah, yeah, the other side of it. Yeah, or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, fuck yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for like coming and hanging out and, you know, talking about nerdy shit with me. I always appreciate it. Um, is there any questions that you want to ask me or is there anything that you want to talk about that I didn't bring up or anything like that? No, not really, dude. Well, yeah. Thanks for having me on for our brief little talk here. Yeah. Fuck yeah. I appreciate it. Well, looking forward to record. We're going to be recording another episode of Ad Hoc History in just a couple minutes here with our guest, Josh Wetzel. So definitely looking forward to that. So Folks should keep an eye out on the Ad Hoc History RSS feed or follow us on Instagram. At Ad Hoc History. All right. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Not the history podcast you wanted. The history podcast you deserve. Well, hell yeah, Alexa. Hell yeah, dude. Well, thank you so much. And um, always a pleasure or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Good enough. Cheers. Hell yeah. All right, fuck yeah. Thanks so much to Asher for joining me. If you enjoyed that, you can hear Asher and I discuss history on the Ad Hoc History Podcast. The episode with Josh Wetzel is now live. Thanks so much to Josh for joining us. It was a great conversation. You can hear even more from Asher in the first few episodes of this show entitled Explaining Chaos Magic to My Brother, where we go into some chaos magic basics. And also in episode 7 about hypersigils, and again in episode 30, I dream, therefore I am. And you can hear Josh Wetzel and I talk about his newest book, Toxic Magic, in episode 35. Don't forget to check out all the great shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network, including Administrism, Grognostics, Primordia, XV Planis, Smuts Up, and Unearthing Paranormalcy. All right. So to get us back into sort of a devilish frame of mind, how about a little poetry snack here? This is from The Marriage of Heaven and Hell by William Blake. This is Plate 4, The Voice of the Devil. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the cause of the following errors. That man has two real existing principles viz. a body and a soul, that energy, called evil, is alone from the body, and that reason, called good, is alone from the soul, that God will torment man in eternity for following his energies. But the following contraries to these are true, Man has no body distinct from his soul, for that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul in his age. Energy is the only life and is from the body, and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. Energy is eternal delight. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Devil. And thank you, William Blake. 
I'll be back later on to talk about initiation stories, share some news, as well as some mushroom and programming updates, and much more. But now, let's get back into the rest of my conversation with Chris Allen about the Black Book of Jonathan Not Bristle, A Devil's Parable and Guide for Witches, and more. Chris has some awesome advice to offer. To lead us in, here is a selection from Fuck Around and Find Out Part 2, The Green Mushroom Project and Wheel Hollow Digital Mixtape. This is part of the track Sal Up by Antimony Jackson, who describes it as follows. Here is some super weird occult music, question mark, circa 1997, part of a series recorded on an analog four track with guitars, sleigh bells, and stuff. The plot was of all of Earth's magic being used to thwart an alien invasion. The intent was to embed psychic messages in the music. Results undetermined. <laughs> All right, thanks for that description, Antimony Jackson. Let's get back into it here to my chat with Chris Allen. So the way that this works is I have my guests ask a question, and then we will roll some dice to see which text we will be consulting, and mm. then I will perform a bibliomancy reading to answer the question. Cool. So if you're into it, please go ahead and ask the oracle whatever you would like. Well, I'm just going to say this. What lies ahead on the, on the, um, the path before me? All right. I have to be very general sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but also, this is a good, good question to ask, I feel like. A general uh, outlook kind of thing is always handy. All right. Polaris, please advise. All right. Looks like we're going to be consulting. To, oh, the Book of the Law by Alistair Crowley. <laughs> That's interesting because I am actually initiated into the OTO. Okay, very cool. So you're very familiar with this text then. Hopefully there'll be something useful in this reading for you. (laughs) Let me go and find it. I will be right back here. Sure. All right. I have located this text. Oh, Eris, please tell us what lies in Chris's immediate path. Much of this is well known. The dramatic sense has forced me to emphasize what is commonly understood because of the height of the tragedy or the comedy 
if we have that power of detachment from mankind, which we attribute only to the greatest of men, the Aristophanes, the Shakespeare's, the Ballocks, the Rabiuses, the Voltaire's, the Byron's, that power which makes poets at one time pitiful of the woes of men and at other gleefully contemptuous of their discomfitures. Okay, <laughs> some heavy stuff here. This is obviously from the uh, uh, Confessions of a Dope Fiend part of it, I believe. Yes. But um, yeah, okay, so there you are. Hopefully there's something useful. It's <laughs> <laughs> interesting, though, because, you know, I've studied Crowley and, and I understand his, his, some of his uh, philosophies and things. And, you know, what that sounds like to me is, you know, for him, he would often talk about how it, it was the artists and in the, the witches and the magicians and shamans and dreamers and dancers who make change into the world. And simply by being an artist or by being a magician, you were fighting against the patriarchy, fighting against the status quo. Um, so I think it's apropos. Um, I work a lot with, you know, anti-racism. I work a lot with the queer movement. So I'm all a about saying screw you to the patriarchy and things like that because I think that we can't change the world until we change our government and we change the church and we change religion and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that all starts very small and very locally. Um, absolutely. 100%. It starts with yourself and then with your group and then with your community and then so forth. Yeah, fuck yeah. So would you mind telling the listeners and I a little bit more about your activism work and how that might um, interchange with your magical practice? Because that's something that we like to talk about here when we get the chance to. Yeah, so I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine who who identifies as non-binary. And he had, he also identifies as he. And he was saying that, oh, he doesn't feel like an activist. And I said, simply because you exist in the world, you're an activist. So, you know, being whoever you are, if that's straight, queer, bi, trans, whatever that means to you, that's activism. Uh, you know, I, I'm i very much right now on this thing about supporting our trans community. I think what's very sad to me is in the gay community, there isn't a lot of support for our trans brothers and sisters. I think a lot of us, if you don't fit in a box, they don't want to be, they don't want to really connect, you know. One of the also thing that saddens me, I see in the gay community with a lot of men is, is that they say they support trans, but I don't see, I don't see the receipts, you know. I don't see the support there. I, I think people like to check a box and they don't actually do anything. So you know, for me, anytime I can do a protest or sign something or speak out or create a video or a podcast or write something in my books or something, I want to do that. I remember I angered a whole lot of people because I made a Facebook post about two or three years ago and I said, you know, going forward unless I'm speaking about a male or female character, I'm always going to say they. Partly is because, you know, when you say something like, I'm not sure who they are, but I'm sure they're a good person. 
it sounds very simple to do. And simply because I said in my writing, I'm going to start doing they. And yes, of course, it's a specifically gendered character. People are like the LGBTQ community as well was like, well, why would you do that? Why? I'm like, again, simply by being seen and helping a community become seen as activism. You know, and and I can get on my high horse about that, but <laughs> we only have a short time. <laughs> but no, that makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate that. And I think that language is definitely one of these things that comes up in a lot of these conversations. And language being so important and such a huge part of how we understand the world, of course, it's going to be like a central thing. And yeah, I've heard different people say different things about you know this pronoun issue, and like, is it? wrong to just say they in a general sense because you're painting with too broad of a brush that way i'm not sure all i can do is try to be inclusive and do my best right so yes you know what i like to tell people who fucking cares like if someone wants to be called green then call them green if someone wants to be called they call them they i don't understand the problem yeah absolutely it's it's interesting because like we we want to gender everything and for myself and i can't speak for others' points of view, but for myself, unless I'm having sex with you, I really don't care. I don't, I could care less. Like, if you are, because I am like, I never understand why people have such a hard time because, oh, you changed the rules, you changed something, you know? So, whatever, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) They want to be called. Yeah, sure, exactly. Like, it's just, there's no skin off of your back to just call somebody by the name they want to be called. I mean, don't be a dick or anything. Like, I mean, come on. (laughs) All right, well, let's move on back to the devil. (laughs) An easier topic to discuss, perhaps. I'm not sure. (laughs) So, I was hoping we could talk a little about like the idea of the devil and first like how this character exists within the paradigm of the book with Jonathan and then sort of like maybe expand that out to a more general look at the devil as like an archetype in our society maybe. Yeah. So, you know, I think the word devil has a lot of energy behind it, kind of like Dracula or Darth Vader or, or even a Yoda, you know, this archetype thing that carries a whole lot of energy and sometimes a lot of hate and baggage and things. You know, what I find empowering for myself is I do a lot. I take old ideas and try to create something brand new. So when I do, you know, traditional witchcraft, I don't, I like to research it, but I don't like to stay in that place. So, for example, if if the spell says, okay, take a goat's eye and, and boil it and then chant over it, I'm probably not going to do that simply because I'm also an, an animal activist and I don't like, if you're going to eat something, that's fine, let's eat it, but we're not going to harm anything. So, I think... I'm very fine with adjusting old traditional spells to for our modern sense and values and things like that. That being said, you know, the devil has a whole lot of, of, of meaning, you know. One of the things I try to be mindful of in my own practice is, is that 
and neo-paganism is a brand new thing. It's like how we practice it. Even the eight Sabbaths, how we practice it is a, is a newer thing. And a lot of times in, in some paganism, they like to take out the scary, you know? But, but they I also like... <laughs> yes, I've noticed that. <laughs> like, oh, we like Samhain, but only one time a year. You can only call the dead at Samhain and things like that. And I'm just like, well, that's not nature, you know. Nature is light and dark and death and scary and great and joyous and and horrible and cruel at the same time, you know. So I think that we're past this whole, oh, there's no devil in the craft. Oh, there's no evil. Oh, there's no darkness, blah, blah, blah. And we know that's not true because that's not how how humans are you know i don't believe in satan like the satan of the bible but i do uh, believe in dark figures i think that you know the hornet one and the devil go hand in hand you know one of the stories i was told by my first traditional witchcraft teacher because when you uh, look at some of the old spells, they say, oh, call to the devil, call to the devil, blah, blah, blah. And I asked him that. Well, why do we do that? And the way he explained it to me is that if you're in the 14 and 1500s and you went to church and they said, oh, be careful about the devil, be careful about the devil, and the devil has horns and hooves, that's the devil, be careful about the devil. <laughs> and then you're out in the forest and a god or a creature or an entity comes to you and calls him has horns and hooves in your head you're like oh yeah the priest said that's the devil however his be his behavior his characteristics are different than the biblical satan and it's funny because i i now have a master's degree in biblical uh, studies in, in, in divinity. And so this whole idea of the devil, Satan being evil is a very Christian thing. It's not even in the Old Testament because, you know, the word Satan or Satan actually means adversary. Mm-hmm. And in the Hebrew Bible, what it actually meant was God had an angel that was kind of like a prosecuting attorney who... If you were were acting a fool, he'd come and say, hey, listen, get your crap together, you know, mm-hmm. and that was the adversary versus an evil being. But that being said, there's a there's a there's also tons of folklore about an entity. The devil was different than a devil, you know, just like the word fairy in the Middle Ages and like in Celtic uh, countries, they called all spirits fairies. All spirits were a fairy. So, especially here in America, like all spirits are, especially in the, in the Bible Belt, oh, they're devils. You know, those those devils out there, those, those mischievous spirits who are trying to get you, you know. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, and I'm a, I'm a Gemini, so I like to see all points of views. That's why people hate us. <laughs> um, you know, I have friends who uh, follow like Lilith and like the Kelly Potes uh, spirits or spirits who are a little bit darker. And 
you know, the third thing is, is that why can't we, we honor a dark spirit who says, screw you to the patriarchy and the patriarchy being Yahweh, you know, of why can't we honor a, a spirit who says, hey, everything that you Puritans, you evangelicals have done, you have you've burned us, you killed us, you destroyed, you know, you destroyed pagan cultures, you literally invented racism, you you had slavery, so why can't we honor our dark figure with horns who fights against that type of patriarchy? And I, I personally don't see the devil like that per se, but I think there's an interesting. I, I think there's an interesting argument. For me personally, I honor um, the, the angel Lucifer in my spiritual practice. Can can I can I honor the horned god of the witches, who we often call devil? So I think that before someone has a judgment about, oh, you can't say devil. There's no devil in the craft that maybe try to see a bigger picture and see if that like strengthens your ideas about what the devil is. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm kind of thinking about this idea, putting myself in the mindset of these folks that would have been operating back at this time with this puritanical idea. Like there can be a lot of power in sort of like ritually breaking taboo. And I think that like just that yes. tattoo of working with this concept of the devil, I think could have just been very powerful for that reason as well. Exactly. Psychologically speaking, you know, those old initiations that says, oh, how do you become a witch? You say the Lord's Prayer backwards. It isn't a fuck you to God. That's not why mm-hmm. um, you do it. The reason you read the Lord's Prayer backwards psychologically is because it undoes all the brain washing that the church has done and you know the thing to remember i i will say i have a lot of christian friends and you know the the churches that they belong to are are queer affirming welcoming they're protesting racism as well that's amazing can i can i I support them on their path. Uh, when these old spells were written about, say, the Lord's Prayer backwards, it was fighting against this massive oppression. And the brainwashing, like, for example, I was raised in the South. There was a whole lot of queer people when I was growing up who thought they were actually going to hell. Like, it was a real thing. Like, they can't help but to go to hell because who they are. And so by saying the Lord's Prayer backwards, it's horrible. (laughs) By by saying the Lord's Prayer backwards, it helps undo Mm -hmm. that brainwashing. It helps you release that that oppression, that fear, that repression, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so in the chaos magic community, we talk about something called deprogramming, or in my words, reprogramming. Yes, yes, yes. My most recent guest is talking about something also called rewilding, which I think is adjacent. What's that? Sort of going against the domesticative current. A lot of 
Yeah, so, yeah, the whole, con he, he explains it in a greatly succinct way in this conversation, but yeah, basically this sort of idea that there is this kind of force that acts upon the world that's a sort of domesticating force and organizing force. Um, Discordians might call it like the force of gray face or something or bureaucracy or whatever. Yeah, this idea of, you know, how do we choose very consciously how to interact with that in our magical practice and set up our own good foreign policies for interacting with thing, messengers of this force. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool stuff. So, and I think that I'm hearing you say like, you know, as a, as a witch, like this is really central to the practice is, is really deciding these types of things for yourself and really getting real with yourself and saying like, no, this is who I am, um, regardless of what I've been told. And I'm going to figure out a way to, to do this in the world that is, you know, ethically for me and, you know, good for me and that will work for me regardless of what messages I might be receiving to the contrary. So yeah. wanna hear something funny from Kimber, how we just did the bibliomancy. I think we're talking about exactly what you said from the uh, the uh, divination. Okay. Yeah, I think you might be right. There's a lot of yeah. stuff in there about like um it reminded the the divination too reminded me of a conversation I've been having with my brother Asher recently. We make a history podcast together, and there's a concept that comes up in history and in other places of of greatness. And Crowley mm -hmm. mentions this concept in that little snippet that we read. Like, uh -huh. what what does greatness mean? And when we look at history, like it's I'm not necessarily sure it's like a good thing or not. And this is an age old question, of course. Like we've been asking ourselves this question for as long as we've been writing things down, but it's, it's still, it still nags at me, right? It's like that these people do these amazing things and change the world, but it always seems to come at such a high price to others around them. I mean, Crowley is a great example of this. Like he did interesting and amazing things in the world of magic, but he, he, was also, a person. he also caused a lot of pain and suffering to the You're people. Him. So like, it's, uh, yeah, it's all very complicated. Yeah. You know, it's an, it's interesting because I like to have these conversations and it's a warning to us because I think, you know, when you see these evangelical people who are like, oh, I'm so high in the church, but I hire prostitutes, which is fine because I'm very, whatever you enjoy. Just don't be a hypocrite, right? Like, yeah. And, and, and you know, I think what happens is people who, are you know very spiritual or make change or you know corporate executives i think they think that oh i'm doing so much so many great things that if i if i harm someone well it balances out mm -hmm. you know and it doesn't the ends justify the means right as soon as we start thinking in this manner we're in dangerous territory I know, and it's hard because, you know, and you have to ask yourself, well, do you sacrifice three people to save a hundred or do you sacrifice zero people and zero people are helped? So there's, <laughs> yeah, it's a weird yeah. question. The yeah, it's a, a form of the trolley problem, it sounds like, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's and these things, I think, even just thinking about them and considering them, even if you don't come to a conclusion, I think that the exercise is still useful. Absolutely. So in regards to, you know, kind of looking through the spells and other magical operations that we find in the Black Book of Jonathan Not Bristle, A Devil's Parable and Guide for Witches, how would you suggest readers approach it to like get the most out of what Jonathan is teaching us? 
Um, you've already mentioned a little bit about how Jonathan has taught you, but I was curious um, how much of what we see Jonathan's in Jonathan's practice, how much of that is a reflection of your own, or is this things mm. that you might have picked up, you know, creating this book? So to answer the first part of the question, I would just say go on the journey as you read the uh, stories with Jonathan and and tag along with him as he explores witchcraft and has his adventures and 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 things like that. All those techniques, I actually do. Everything like you know the devil's. Feast is a traditional witchcraft of saying cakes and ale, to be honest. It's it's like the... Um, I'm actually convinced. I'm actually convinced that a lot of traditional witches like to do the, the devil's feast because it's kind of like the anti-communion. And you get <laughs> snacks. I mean, who doesn't love snacks? <laughs> I will say the hoozle, it's, you know, we often call it a hoozle, which is a Northern European term. I think Anglo-Saxon, something like that. It's loosely um, based on a Northern European bloat to where the liquid in the horn or the cup is blood or wine. And, and what's in the plate or, or the bowl is, is either wheat or actually meat. And by sharing the um, hoozle or the blow with your community, you're actually ingesting the energy of the spirits, mm. um, the energy of the gods, the energy of the ancestors, and the, and the energy of the, like the fae, the elves, things like that. And these are things we do in our our circle. You know, you know the spell about flying on the broom. I teach that to my students. Um, fairy magic. I teach that. Um, everything in there. Um, I don't think there's anything in there that I don't teach in some way or form. You know, because I think there's like a seance at one point and there's raising the dead and things like that. And I actually have a few books that talk about the ancestors and the dead and necromancy and, and, and all those. It's one of my favorite things. So, so yeah, I like to... Everything you're reading in the book is what we do in our circle. Okay, very cool. I love it. So not to give any spoilers, but there's a <laughs> chance that there could be, it seemed like you might have set it up for a possible sequel. Um, is there going to be one, do you think? I hope so. I don't know. The uh, book I'm writing now is a similar style of book, but it isn't a direct sequel. I've been having a lot of people ask me to write a sequel because, you know, one of the things I keep keep hearing over and over and over again is from brand new people who are just starting their journey into witchcraft. And there's and I keep hearing things like, oh, I had the exact same problem Jonathan had, or I had the exact same fear that Jonathan had, or I had the exact same anxieties that Jonathan had. And I feel kind of connected with that. I really felt like it was um, me doing the magic. And I thought that was really cool. Um, Like when I set out to write it, I didn't think like, oh, try to capture the um, mindset of someone discovering spells. I wrote it with the idea of 
try to be authentic to the journey itself. And so I, like when I wrote it, I didn't think, oh, troubleshoot all the problems that people have with witchcraft. I just thought I wanted to write an authentic experience. And I think I, I think I did that with Jonathan. Yeah, I think so too. There was a lot that I could relate to in there. And one of the things that I liked the most about it is that throughout the narrative of the story, we see things in very small but very steady ways just improving around Jonathan in every way. Like everything yeah. is just getting better for everybody around just by these very small acts that he's, he's doing in, in the dark and in the quiet. And yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> cool. <laughs> I mean, hopefully that's what our spiritual paths are for if Kiro witch or a ceremonial magician or a chaos magician or whatever you are i mean it should help your path it should teach you and one of the things i tell my students all the time is is that yes magic is fun and it's cool and can be glamorous sometimes but, but it also should be an aid to your own spiritual evolution yeah and i think that whether or not you look for that it might end up demanding that of you, whether you like it or not. Well, you know, I, I, I am convinced that the more powerful you become, the, the more connected you become, and the deeper your relationships with the gods, the ancestors, the spirits, you're making a commitment to the spirits to change, to to evolve, to be different, to be a better person, to be a better friend, a better human being. And I have found if you're not using your gifts to to evolve and help help other people, and the spirits tend to put challenges and obstacles in your in your place, not to harm you or to punish you, but to teach you. Hey, we need to become a a better race of human beings. We need to stop being so selfish. We and need to get I, our shit together. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the thing because I had a, a student a while back who was just like, why am I having all these challenges? I was like, because you made a commitment to the spirits and you're not holding up to your commitment. And now they're trying to get your attention. They're not trying to harm you. They're trying to say, hello, you forgot about us. You know? <laughs> or, yeah, I mean, even in just sort of more general sense, like when we're doing magic, and this is something that, you know, I think Aiden Wachter mentioned, it's like you're asking for things to change. You're literally asking for change in a magical practice. And that can well, be. Well, that's very, the whole point, right? <laughs> yeah, destabilizing. So, like, you know, when things start to change and get crazy, be ready for that because they will change if you're asking them for them to change. Magic works. And, and they should you change. What you want. Yeah. Yeah. And change is fun. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, overall, yes, I think I agree. <laughs> For sure. I mean, sometimes you know, humans are creatures of habit. We do the same thing in and out, in and out, and you know, we can't expect a different outcome, a different life if we don't get out of our habits. And I think that magic, energy healing, the spirits—they help us change it up. And I know sometimes you're like, oh, I have to have a new job or I have to have a new living situation. Well, it's probably because your your current situation isn't propelling you or supporting you on your spiritual path. And so that needs to change. And of course, 
as humans, we are very scared of the unknown. That's why we love our tarot cards so much, because we like to know what's going to happen. Oh my gosh, I don't, I need to know every single thing that's going to happen or else I'm going to have anxiety. And let me tell you, I'm the first person to have that anxiety too. So I get it. Yeah, no, definitely. For sure. So is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you would like to discuss, Chris? Hmm, not really. The only thing I want to say is I kind of want to give out a shout out to Cross and Crow Books, who are my Yeah, shout out to Cross Crow. Yeah, thanks for checking out. I love them. I I, want to say Blake and Wick and the entire team and my PR person, Francesca, who is not afraid to hold my hand if I need hand-holding for things. But the reason they impress me is because they have a whole lot of great ideas. They have some great goals, and they really want to help the author, the artist succeed and do wonderful things. And it was interesting because every... I actually live a few blocks from their office. I just do. And so whenever I, you know, I go to the office or have a, a meeting with them, they're like, okay, Chris, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, oh, okay. So I have to think about something. And I, I like that because it, it's all about support. And plus, like the guys themselves, they're just really cool, smart connected spiritually connected people who they just kind of get it and you know what that means you know those magical people who just kind of get it that's who they are so i wanted to so check out their website (laughs) crosscrowbooks.com absolutely i'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can check it out so is there any questions that you would like to ask me no i don't think i have anything right now okay awesome so where can listeners find your work other than crosscrow.com? So I am on crosscrow.com and I'm also on Amazon. Um, my last name, name is spelled strange, so it's pronounced Alan. However, it's spelled A-L-L-A-U-N, so I'm on Amazon. I'm at some shops. It's weird because my previous books, I was with um, um, Mandrake of Oxford and then a UK publisher, Moon Books. You, you can find those on Ingram and, and, and New Leaf and things and stuff like that. Okay, very cool. So before I let you go here, could you leave the listeners and I with um, some final thoughts, maybe some advice that you end up giving to a lot of your students or something along those lines, some thoughts about magic and the practice of it? Find the stories, find the meaning, find the mythology, find the folklore, um, because we we can read the techniques like, oh, step one, close your eyes, step two, take a breath. And I think all those are great, but when you have a a story behind it, like, for example, Star Wars, Mm -hmm. the reason Star Wars is so good for Harry um, Potter or, you know, practical magic or whatever uh, magical uh, movies that you enjoy, it's inspiring because you, you you get to experience the storytelling. And storytelling is who we are. Our lives are a story. You know, 
sometimes we may not think, oh, I know I'm not having a grand adventure, but maybe you are. It's interesting to think of if you can write a biography of your your life over the years, would that help someone else? Because this story about you and I like to say that all of our lives are connected. We have a whole lot of similarities. That's why archetypes have meaning for some people. But at the end of the day, you can find uh, magic in the storytelling. I love that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Very cool. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me today. This has been super enjoyable. And um, yeah, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Absolutely. This was a whole lot of fun. Hell yeah. Man getting bit by an alligator and he screams. All right. Thanks so much to Chris Allen. Check out crosscrowbooks.com to find the Black Book of Jonathan Knott Bristle, A Devil's Guide and Parable for Witches, and see the show notes for links to his other stuff. Thanks also to Asher. Check out the Ad Hoc History podcast available where most pods are cast. There's tons of great stuff coming down the line here on the Luxacult podcast. I've been sort of obscenely busy recently recording a bunch of really dope interviews and getting some other stuff together, all while also trying to do some fun traveling and other summertime stuff. And there's a lot that I'm looking forward to sharing with you all. We're going to be continuing to celebrate spooky season with spirit boxes, getting into magical activism, talking about chaos magic news, and much more in episodes to come, so keep an ear out. There's also a lot going on with the Green Mushroom Project and the Green Machine server, home of that, as well as Administrism. We're going to be continuing to get into our Chaos Magic introductory discussions moving forward here. Big thanks to Shane Mindbender for hosting the first one on the topics of magical models and paradigms. You can hear Shane and many of the Green Mushroom Project audio grimoire episodes available on the RSS feed here as well as in episode 45, where Shane shares with me about the sort of accidental hyper-sigil that led him into the practice of magic. Accidental hyper-sigils, by the way, will be the topic of our next Fungal Friday chat. The 23 Bibliomancy experiment continues on. We're about to do the 12th iteration of that. Grab some D10s and the book that wants to participate and join us on the 23rd of the month as we continue to discover the project scripture by using the 23rd line of the 23rd page, sorted by rolling dice. It's been a fascinating experiment so far that I am stoked to continue. And as I said, we'll be doing that on the 23rd of the month, so join us on the Green Machine server for the fun. Come back on the 24th for 24 Cinema Score, hosted by Yaramurud, where we do our own sort of mystery science theater thing with old horror movies. It's a good time. Keats Ross from the We the Hollowed Occult Artists Collective, and I will be continuing to sort out all of the amazing submissions we received for the Fuck Around and Find Out Part 2 digital mixtape as the summer wanes on. There's a lot of great stuff in there. Thanks so much to everybody who contributed tracks to that. 
You can find Lux Occult, Hello Void, and other merch available at Illumin Industries, which is my Etsy store. Items will be printed on demand using the most eco-friendly options I could find and shipped directly to you at pretty close to cost. And there's some pretty fun stuff in there. I'm going to be running a little contest here um, on my Instagram page soon to try out a magical experiment as well as for shits and giggles. Uh, whereby a few folks can win an item from the shop and other prizes by solving a simple cryptographic puzzle and writing a short poem or haiku or something like that in response. I'll announce that in the next few weeks or so on the Luxicult Pod Instagram feed, so check that out if you haven't already and you want to participate in that silliness. All right, let's do some listener mail and shoutouts. Shout out to Lance Criminal Galen. Always good hearing from you. And thank you so much for the kind words about this show and about ad hoc history. We appreciate it. Glad that you are enjoying the World War II stuff. Yes, I have checked out Neil Stevenson's work. I am a big fan. Um, I know Cryptonomicon is a classic. Snow Crash is so fun. I love it. Um, there's also another one called Seven Eves, which is the sort of near future sci-fi, which is pretty interesting too. A lot of cool stuff there, so fuck yeah, I love it. This next one is from Steve. Hey, what's up, Steve? Longtime listener, first time caller from the UK here. <laughs> I love it. Uh, just watched a very good movie, which kind of kept nudging my thoughts towards your podcast. If you ever get the time and you haven't seen it already, then check out A Field in England by Ben Wheatley. It has a nice mix of history and magic and maybe right up your street. Many thanks. Thank you so much uh, for the kind words, Steve. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, thank you so much for the recommendation about this as well as about Song of Myself by Walt Whitman. Dope stuff. Hello to you, Yulia, if you're listening. It was an honor to conduct that ceremony with you the other day. Very cool. Thank you. Greetings to Shannon. Awesome seeing you. Keep fucking telling it like it is. Shout out to Quiet Mountain Man on Instagram and to Cody and to Cats. Much love to all of the fungi and pocket wizards as well. If you like the show, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Making this thing is a lot of work for one intrepid podcaster, but I really do love doing it. Thank you so much to the people who are making it possible by giving on Patreon or buy me a coffee. And to the people who are supporting the show by spreading the word. Helping people who might be interested find out about the podcast is a great way to show your support if money is tight. Tell your friends. Tell your county clerk. Tell your attorney and your accountant, your doctor and your drug dealer. <laughs> tell your foes and your lovers and the person who waxes your butthole about it. You can also post about it on social media or write a positive review. All of these things are super helpful. So thank you very much to those of you who are already doing them. And oh yes, if you wouldn't mind, don't forget to smash the shit out of that follow button so you can get updates about when a new episode comes out. Okay, let's talk a little bit about initiation stories. Few thoughts here. We might even be able to call them initiatory stories in some cases, as in performing the act of initiation. 
I guess that over in Britain, the term initiation can mean like something closer to what in the States we would call hazing, but that's not what I'm talking about here. So Oxford University Press provides the following definition of an initiation story. So an initiation story is a story with a plot in which the protagonist or narrator gains some measure of maturity from a life-changing experience or gains knowledge about the world and insight into his or her future adult world. This change often advances the character toward an adult world. These stories should provide clues that the change will have some permanent lasting effects on his or her life. Initiation stories center on many various experiences and they vary in effect. Some stories stop short and lead the character only to a certain level of maturity and understanding, but don't cross over. These stories emphasize the shock effect of the experience, and the protagonists tend to be quite young. Some stories take the protagonist across the maturity threshold. Initiation stories usually involve self-discovery, and for this reason, many initiation stories are told by first-person narrators. Okay, so thank you to Oxford Press. I think that Chris Allen's Black Book of Jonathan Not Bristle definitely fits the bill for being an initiation story. We see Jonathan confronted with a variety of challenges as he begins to walk the crooked path. And there is literally an initiation as part of the narrative. He starts out young and begins to come into his own as the story goes on. Um, a sidebar, I really like what Chris said about storytelling in our conversation. Cool stuff. Okay, so the definition I shared from Oxford looks at things through the lens of, like, literature. But what can initiation stories offer when we treat them as, like, occult technology? The Feast of Doksha, which Jan Fries has a very cool treatment of in his book Kali Kaula, is also an initiation story. I'm not going to read that right now. I feel like it would feel weird lifting it in whole from Jan's book. But I do love the note that comes after it, so I'll share that. Um, he notes that not only is the story at the core of tantric myth, appearing in numerous versions, but that the reader should go back and immediately read it again. Then, he says, tell yourself the story a few times until it becomes a lively and vivid experience. This is a useful trance practice. Make the story vivid, add detail and put emotion into it, as you make the tale come to life, you may find that it works in magic in your mind. This is a story of initiation, and you can make it your own. All right, fuck yeah, thanks to Jan Fries for that, love that perspective. The story of how Persephone becomes the queen of the underworld is also an initiation story, and one that I think about often. Here's a little bit about that from Wikipedia. Persephone's abduction by Hades, also known as the Rape of Persephonea, is mentioned briefly in Hesiod's Theogony and is also present in the Homeric Hymn to Demeter. Zeus, it is said, permitted Hades, who was in love with the beautiful Persephone, to abduct her. They assume that Persephone's mother, Demeter, was not likely to allow her daughter to go down to Hades with Hades. Hades is a person and a place. Don't worry about it. Persephone was gathering flowers with friends in a field when Hades came to abduct her, bursting through a cleft in the earth, seizing her and dragging her down to the realm of the dead. Demeter, when she found that her daughter had disappeared, searched all over the earth with Hecate's torches. In most versions, she forbids earth to produce 
or she neglects the earth, and in the depths of her despair she causes nothing to grow. Helios, the sun, who sees everything, tells Demeter what happened, and Zeus, who's pressed by the cries of all the hungry mortals and the other deities who are also hearing everybody freak out about not having any food or anything, uh, forces Hades to return Persephone. Um, in an earlier version of the story, Hecate is said to have rescued Persephone or negotiated on behalf of Demeter for the return of her daughter. It was also explained to Demeter that Persephone would be released so long as she did not taste the food of the underworld. So here we have this idea of taboo entering into the story. So Hades complies with the request, but first he tricks Persephone, giving her some pomegranate seeds to eat. Hermes is sent to retrieve her, but because she has tasted the food of the underworld, she is obliged to spend a third of the year, or the winter months, there, and the remaining part of the year she can be with the other gods above. Okay, so thank you, Wikipedia, for that. This is a sort of boiled-down version of the story that I've made a few modifications to, but it still tells us a lot of interesting things about how the people who came up with the story like thought about things. The abduction of Persephone is an example of an etiological myth, something that provides an explanation for the changing of seasons. The seed is buried, taken below, like Persephone, and then returns. In addition to the stuff about agriculture and seasons and everything, for me the story illuminates some interesting things about how power as a sort of like abstract concept seems to function. There's stuff in here about taboo and sexuality, we see the pomegranate come up as this kind of like forbidden or taboo thing. Um, the pomegranate is actually most likely what the snake or devil in the Bible used to tempt Eve rather than an apple of the genus Malice, which is a new world plant. Some ancients considered Hades to be another aspect of Zeus rather than his brother. Hecate features prominently for me in my meditations on this subject as well as like being sort of this like principle that allows for the communication or transmission of power, the path that Persephone takes to and from the thonic realms, the breaker that closes the circuit and allows energy to flow. There's a lot there for me. Anyway, if you have thoughts or experiences that you would like to share with the listeners and I about initiation stories, Hecate, Persephone, the devil, or whatever else, you can reach me at luxocultpod at gmail.com or find me at luxocultpod on Instagram. All right, I'm going to leave you here with the Green Mushroom Project Statement of Resistance. But first, what can we learn from the devil? Well, I've thought a lot about this and come up with a lot of different things at different times in regards to this archetype. But when I thought about it today for writing this little part of the show, what I came back with was very simple. And it was this. Live deliciously. Now this is of course sort of uh, tied in with some pop culture stuff, but I think that Chris's advice here is also a good touchstone. Find the stories. Find the meaning. Find the magic in the storytelling. And resist. Resist by maintaining sovereignty of the self. Resist by maintaining love of the self. Resist by maintaining fierce loyalty to love and pleasure. Resist with acts of radical kindness. Focus on the path to better times.
Fuck yeah. Thanks so much to Chris Allen and to Asher for joining me. Thanks to Cross Crow Books, Antimony Jackson, PG Warfare, and everyone who contributed tracks to Fuck Around and Find Out, the Green Mushroom Project and We the Hollow digital mixtape available this fall. Most of all, thank you so much for listening. Much love. This is Lux Estrada, reminding you to stay strong and stay fucking curious. Alright, let's go out with the track Necrofancy by PG Warfare. Cheers. Cult is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Are you tired of other so-called energy drinks leaving you stuck at start while your opponents level up? Try Demon Semen, new from Blastastic. With five patented ampers plus a spicy kick of cayenne, Demon Semen will have you blasting to the next level. Don't have time to guzzle the whole bottle? Sometimes I just spray it all over my face for a quick pick-me-up between bosses. Demon Semen by Blastastic. It's conquest in a can. Blastastic, get blasted! Demon Semen and Blastastic are registered trademarks of Illumin Industries. All rights reserved. Available wherever narcotics are sold. See label for possible side effects.
What scares you? Ghosts. Aliens. Monsters. The occult. Conspiracies. Some of you like to be scared, and unearthing paranormalcy is for you. Some of you try everything you can to avoid it. Unearthing paranormalcy is for you. We take the topics that scare some, and we dig in to find the source, then present the history to make the paranormal a little more normal. We also throw in a bit of comedy to shed a light on some of the darkness in the world. So whether you're scared of bumps in the night, what's inside your own mind, or strange lights in the sky, we cover it all. We dig in and present all that we find and try to come up with some logical and not so logical reasons for the high strangeness happenings. Sometimes we are scared of the things we don't understand. And the more we understand, the less we fear. So find us, Unearthing Paranormalcy, on your favorite podcast app. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord at UMP Normalcy. And until next time, keep digging. Welcome to XV Planets. Greetings, friends, fiends, and lovers of strange and wondrous things. My name is Flood, and I am the host of XV Planets, a bi-weekly podcast of the odd and unusual. The core of XV Planets is a documentary-style exploration into paranormal investigations that I and my ever-evolving group of magical misfits conduct. We take a look at the history, the mystery, then go see it for ourselves, and then we bring that experience, and on occasion, that evidence, to your ears. Alongside the investigations, you'll find a treasure trove of other content, like interviews with authors, art historians, mediums, UFO researchers, cryptid hunters, fellow paranormal investigators, as well as deep dives into the arts, exploring topics like the killing joke frontman Jazz Coleman's magical practices, and how that propelled the band forward, and whether or not David Lynch was really conducting occult rituals through Twin Peaks The Return. So follow XV Planets today and get caught up on the journey, because I can promise you, it only gets stranger from here. I'll see you on the fifth plane.